Hi, everyone. I wanted to remind you of a must read. This is a book that you have to have on your bookshelf. It is called The Necktie and the Jaguar by Carl Greer. He is able to help you make important decisions, give you some guidance on which path to take, and you get to learn how he tapped into the wisdom and power of the unseen worlds for guidance and inspiration. I had the opportunity to interview him, and he was a lovely guest on the Path 11 podcast, episode 343. Check it out. Listen to the podcast. Go buy the book. Again, it's The Necktie and the Jaguar by Carl Greer. To find out more information, go to his website, carlgreer.com. That's spelled C-A-R-L-G-R-E-E-R.com. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by the Reconnective Healing Global Community. I don't know if you guys remember, but back in 2020, we released an episode with Dr. Eric Pearl and Jillian Fleer about reconnective healing. He was a chiropractor who was working in his practice in Los Angeles, and his patients started to report that they were having these healings just with his hands being near them without him actually touching them. So he went on to research and try to find out what this universal wisdom was behind what was happening. And he developed the reconnective healing process. Their website is thereconnection.com and they are offering an online level one class called the portal to awaken your own healing ability and to learn how to do this. There's over eight hours of interactive content where you will learn to interact with energy, light, and information to experience lasting knowingness, peace, and love without limitations. They gave us a coupon code to give to all of our listeners. It is PATH2PORTAL. We're going to put that in the show notes. And that's 25% off of the Portal Online Level 1 course. I hope you guys enjoy. Let me know if you take it. Send me an email. Would love to know how the course works for you. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. We are going to be talking about shared death experiences, and you're probably going to hear us use SDE a lot. So that's what it is, shared death experiences. I came to learn about my guest, William Peters, through Dr. Monica Williams. And I think many of you might remember the podcast episode that we did with her. We also got a chance to meet her in person at the Afterlife Awareness Conference and have some of her talks up on Path 11 TV. But I was really curious to learn a little bit more about the Shared Crossing Project, which my guest, William Peters, is the founder of. And this was founded back in 2013. So he is also the director of its research initiative, recognized as a global leader in the field of shared death studies. He has spent decades studying end-of-life experiences. Previously, William worked as a hospice volunteer with the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco and as a teacher and social worker in Central and South America. A practicing psychotherapist, he holds degrees from Harvard's Graduate School of Education and UC Berkeley. 
His work on end of life is informed by his therapeutic work with individuals and families facing grief and bereavement, personal experiences with death and dying across cultures, and his family's own end of life journeys. So we're going to put um, the website in the show notes, but the website is sharedcrossingproject.com. We'll talk a little bit more about all the resources that William can offer us at the end of the show. But we, I was able to get my hands on an advanced copy of the book. It is not quite out yet. It's coming out in January of 2022. It is called At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the Afterlife Teach About Dying Well and Living Better. And we're going to talk about this and what a shared death experiences and so much more. So, William, welcome to the Path Love and Podcast. Thank you for having me, April. Yes, so excited to have you here. And, you know, it might be a little synchronistic. We were just talking before I hit the record button, trying to figure out how, you know, we got you on here. But I recently did um, a book club. I run a spiritual book club once a month. I chose Dr. Monica Williams because I just loved her, loved the work that she was doing. I love talking about death and preparing for death. And she started talking about the Shared Crossing Project and mentioned your name. And then I think your publicist contacted me. Who knows? Something transmitted through the ethers. And here we are today because I was also going to contact you directly if your publicist didn't. But I'm so excited to actually see some real lifetime research that you have done for many, many years, collecting stories of shared death experiences. And I think this episode is going to be amazing. I'm very excited for it. So can you give our listeners just a little bit more about your background and maybe what made you become really interested in the shared death experience phenomenon? Yeah, thanks. You know, how I got into studying end-of-life experiences and now specifically the shared death experience I think began when I was 17 years old. I had a, I was living a normal life, suburban kid, went up skiing for the weekend and fractured my back in a very severe skiing accident, high speed collision and was catapulted out of my body, sailed through a beautiful universe, saw a light for view, ran into the light. And I, when I saw the light, I knew I was dying and I pled with that light to come back to this life. Pretty classic near-death experience. I had no name for it then. I did talk about it for, I think, a decade, but it did change me quite dramatically. And rather than kind of pursuing other more mainstream paths, I found myself first in Central and South America in two civil wars, working around a lot of death and dying. Uh, I, would, I actually had one experience in particular there that might have been a a shared death. Well, I think it was a shared death experience, but, but another, when I came back from that time in Central and South America, I was working in the Skid Row part of San Francisco as a direct service social worker and the AIDS epidemic broke out in a big way. So there were, I mean, just, you know, thousands of primarily gay men with the HIV virus. And I was really blessed to work with them. And I heard a lot of stories about, you know, these, these experiences. And I'll give a definition about the shared death experience, just so your viewers have a good sense for it. When it's when somebody dies and a caregiver or loved one, and sometimes even a bystander will report that they shared in this transition with the dying into uh, a benevolent afterlife. That's the definition. Uh, the key theme of a, of a shared death experience is a journey 
it, there's a sense that the die is moving from this human incarnation into another dimension. So going back to my work in San Francisco as a social worker, I had been working with uh, a gentleman whose name is, I'll change it, but it's Brad. And Brad was a very loving man. He, he had helped a lot of, of his, he called them his, his brothers in their transition. He lived in a homeless encampment with a lot of impoverished persons with HIV. And he came in one morning beleaguered, just super tired. And I looked at him, I said, Brad, what, what's up? He goes, oh, Randy died last night. I go, I'm so sorry. And then he said, oh, but it was so beautiful. And my eye, and I perked up, I said, so beautiful, tell me. He went on to say that when Brad died, he said, Brad rose up a cylinder of light. Excuse me, Randy rose up a cylinder of light. And as he was above us, he looked down and he was healed. He was at peace. All the pain and suffering in his body was gone. And he thanked us all for caring for him. And he continued up that light. And it left us with this huge heart opening sense of that Brad was not just okay. He was alive and well and going on. So when I heard that experience, I never really heard anything like that before, but it did, I think, un, I think largely unconsciously, I probably thought, oh, I've had something similar like this. So one of the key things to note is as a mental health worker, which you are yourself, understand we are trained in a particular way to look at these types of experiences. And the first thing we're trained to do is look at, a, do a mental status exam. Is this person actually... Is he off his marbles or not? You know, <laughs> has he lost his marbles? I that was off his rocker, lost his marbles. I combined the two, but the idea <laughs> is you get the point here. Right. Is, is this person healthy in mind? Mm -hmm. And I knew for a fact that I was when I had my experience, my first NDE, which I've shared, and that Brad was very much a healthy, indeed wise and caring man. So I never doubted these experiences. I would have more experiences. I'd have a second near-death experience. I would have family members dying in which they had maybe not, I, I can't say I had an SDE with them, but I certainly saw them having pre-death dreams and visions right in front of me with family members coming down. I later worked in Zen Hospice and it was here that I would have many shared death experiences. One in particular was so profound and sudden. I was reading to Bob uh, a book and he was a merchant Marine. So I always read to him adventure stories. He loved them. And by this time he was completely unresponsive. So I'm just reading Jack London, Call of the Wild. And without even losing a beat, I, I find myself above my body, looking at my body, reading the book down below, seeing Bob in his bed, and then I turned somehow and noticed that, I think I changed the names, I, Ron is right next to me. Ron is looking at me and he is happy. He is elated and he's as if to say to me, check this out. So those are the formative experiences. It would take another decade before I would meet Raymond Moody. And Raymond was, did the first, you know, the first major publication on the shared death experience in his book, Glimpses of Eternity. When I met Raymond and started talking with him, 
he was very encouraging because I was so excited. I said, I think we need to research this. I know there's, they're out there. More people are having these than we know. And he, like I said, he became an ally in the research. And that was now, that was 12 years ago now. So at this point, you know, now we have the Shared Crossing Project, which, you know, has all these trainings and workshops to help people understand the experience. But perhaps most importantly is the research initiative is the only initiative that's dedicated to studying these experiences. And we've been published in the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, groundbreaking research just a month ago. And we have other publications coming out. Omega Journal of Death Studies has another article that's been approved. They're just waiting to publish it. So we feel that we are at a key inflection point here where these experiences are going to be validated and the general public is going to now see them, hear about them more and more. Yeah. I mean, that's wonderful news to hear about all of this, you know, being made public. It's going into, you know, journals, you know, places that people will now probably give it a little more attention, validity. You know, it's like, okay, maybe this stuff really is real. Now, I'm I'm curious. So, you know, it's like you you heard some of these stories, you, you know, know that this stuff is happening. How were you able to actually get these stories? I mean, your book at Heaven's Door is a collection of about 28 stories, but, you know, clearly you had to search out. I mean, how do you say, hey, who's had a shared death experience? Want to come talk to me? So how, how did you actually approach people and get people to either write to you or to meet with you, to call you and collect some of these stories? I, I so appreciate that question because that is the question that every researcher in the field has asked me. In fact, one of the premier researchers asked, who just does a lot of research in near-death experiences, had said, we know these experiences happen. We hear about them, but we've never been able to get enough of them in a shorter, short period of time to, to do anything with them significant. Well, this was really interesting to me because I did something in 2011 after I met Raymond, I, I thought, I've got, to, I've got to study this more. And, and your question was exactly what I was thinking. How am I going to find these people? So I started a group in 2011 in Santa Barbara, and it was called Life Beyond Death. It was an exploration of what happens around death and dying at the most, you know, at every level, but it was also focusing on spiritual. So we did advanced care directives and the basics around death and dying. We studied NDEs, we did, we studied mediumship, and we studied all end of life phenomena, the research that was available at the time. And in this group, I did one group. And as I was putting this group out to my community, because I'm at the Family Therapy Institute in Santa Barbara, very well-respected, we're progressive, but we're extremely well-trained and classical in our orientation. So I thought to myself, my colleagues are going to think I've lost it, you know, because you can't go out and do a group like this and be considered a serious mental health practitioner because most of these experiences are on the, on the fringe of, of what we might consider end of life hallucinations or delusions or what have you. But I was so, I knew these were real experiences. I'd had them myself and I'd, I knew enough about them to go forward with this. Started this first group and it's like a floodgate opened. Over the next three to four years, I did this group probably 12 times, had follow-up groups. What it became was a place where people could come and share experiences that they couldn't share anywhere else. Right. If, if, I, 
if I had a dime for every time somebody told me I've never shared this story with anyone before, I would be a millionaire because that was the way most people interrupted, uh, excuse me, interrupted, started their, their sharings in our groups. So with that, I gathered probably a few dozen cases over probably two or three years. And I was studying them. I did more lit reviews. And then I said, okay, if there's this meeting in Santa Barbara, then I got to take, I got to go take the show on the road and see if we can find it. So during that time, which is 2014, 15, 16, I would go to the conferences that you just alluded to, the Afterlife Conference, which has changed its name. I think it's Afterlife and, and Awareness Conference, but it's Terry Daniels' great conference. And those conferences like that and the Afterlife Research and Education Institute has one as well, and a variety of mental health conferences. Long story short, every time I gave a talk on the, on the shared death experience, I mean, I, afterwards, people would come up to me for the rest of the conference. I, at every single conference I went to, I would have at least two dozen to three dozen excellent, spectacular cases. And that's how I built it. The truth be known, by the time I was, you know, really was going to went for basically more funding for the research for a deep dig to be the first institute to actually categorize these. I mean, I had my typologies already. I saw things that had not been identified in the field. And I did this because I was working with the literature in the, across the entire field of both mental health, paranormal, religious studies. And I saw that, that everyone was talking about these, but they, had, they didn't have a unifying typology, which I put together and then our research initiative studied it and validated it. And I can talk more about that if you're interested, but that's how we got the cases. Okay. Very interesting. And, you know, I think what's um, also interesting, and you kind of had it in the book too, was about hospice workers saying, oh, this happens all the time. We just don't talk about it, you know, and that, you know, you kind of highlight that, that in certain, in other areas, I think it was in other countries, it's very open. It, it, it is acknowledged there. The hospices are giving the families pamphlets about how to like engage in the death experience. But over here, would you say in the Western culture, we have a much different approach, more conservative approach to death. Yeah, that's a great insight. I mean, and it's a question because I think the entire Western culture, to the extent that it's more into medical sciences, the more it's leaning into or influenced by medical sciences, the more trouble it has making room for these experiences. And the reason why is because the belief system about consciousness is that it is dependent but, or created by the human brain. So when the human brain goes offline at time of human death, they have no theory that can explain either the near-death experience or the shared death experience. So they just don't know what to do with it. And if they don't have an answer, they're very resistant to it. So there's that. This being, so, and I think that happens in all the, the mod cultures that have a rather developed medical sciences, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, so then again, there are other more indigenous cultures or cultures that are more open-minded and don't, are not 
under the sway of medical sciences for this, they seem to be much more at peace with these. I wouldn't say that they have an operating identification or typologies that work with the shared death experience, but they see them as part of a continuum that fits into other parts of their life. So, uh, for example, when I lived and worked in, in both Peru and Guatemala, there were, you know, indigenous peoples there and the shamans would talk about journeys and consciousness leaving body. And this was just a part of their life and understanding of the world. So when someone died, well, of course their spirit would go somewhere. It wasn't a challenge for them. They didn't need a typology. They didn't need any of the research I was doing. This was just, well, of course you go on beyond mm -hmm. human death. Here we, we get, like I said, you know, for a much of the, med and, and that's not to say there aren't wonderful doctors. There are, there are the hospice doctors. They've seen these hospice nurses in particular have seen these. And there is a struggle with how to talk about these. And it, it's just a phenomena that is both known and yet has not been worked out in terms of how we want to relate to it. One of the great conversations I have was with a, an ICU nurse. And she said to me one time, well, we see these experiences all the time. And I said, well, what do you do? And she goes, well, the first thing I do before I, I know that what this is and that it's normal and it happens quite a bit, the first thing I do is look behind me to see who's the supervisor. If the supervisor is open-minded, then I'll go right up and talk to the patient and the family about these. If not, I have to wait for them to leave. I have to do something because I want to provide the caregivers comfort if they've had a profound experience, but I have to keep my job. So we are very much at a crossroads. And once again, this is why the the articles that we've now had published in one in particular, the American Journal of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, this now provides a foundational re research driven and validated study that can say these happen. This is what they look like. These are the positive benefits. And most importantly, they need to be honored and we need to work with caregivers and loved ones who have these because to, to not do that will call, can, can cause them harm. Right. Yeah. I mean, and your research is just, it's groundbreaking in the fact that you're finally giving language to all of this, right? And, yeah. and now, now it may not be so taboo with with all of the work that you've been doing in this field. It really is amazing. I have a couple questions. I have so many questions. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, the aspect of the multiple shared death experience. And maybe let's start there and then I'll kind of go into a couple of other questions. So can you explain for our listeners, what is the multiple shared death experience? Thank you. Yeah, it's, I love the multiple shared death experience. Mm. We don't get as many of those as we like. I think we have over all of the cases, I want to say we have maybe 11% of those, something, some 10, 11%. But what this means is more than one caregiver, loved one, or bystander will report a shared death experience at, you know, at the time of death. Of course, that's when it happens. So. So what this means is if you're at the bedside and you've got caregivers and loved ones at the bedside, that means more than one person will report that they had a shared death experience. It also can include something that we see in the literature as well, that someone can be at the bedside 
but someone can be remote on the other side of the globe or even down the hall, and they can also have an experience. So when we see that, we call that a multi-person shared death experience. And I guess at the time, I'm wondering if it makes sense just to say a little bit about the, just so people have a, a general understanding for the main phenomena of the shared death experience. First of all, if you're familiar with the near-death experience, those phenomena are the those phenomena are also the main phenomena in the shared death experience. So if you know the near-death experience, then you can say that you you know what the shared death experience is. There are some key differences, primarily in the prevalence or frequency of certain features. So in the near-death experience, 75% of the experiences identify the light as luminous and and awesome and, and just the, the main event. In the shared death experience, the light would be more like 25% of the experiences say that. But that kind of makes sense because if you're, an exper- if you're a shared death experiencer, you're actually not going Going to, to die. Right. You're going to be a little bit further back in the journey, so to speak. Sure. And that's just my own kind of common guy mm-hmm. assessment. But the main phenomena we see in the shared death experience is witnessing or seeing the departing loved one, where the shared death experience will see the loved one who's dying on their journey, progressing, moving forward, and they see that they're alive and well and uh, doing well. And so it's very heartwarming for them to know that, oh my gosh, my departed loved one is indeed alive and well and moving on. And oftentimes they'll see deceased relatives. 13% of the time, they'll also see deceased relatives. 16% of the time, they will see elevated beings, non-humid, who are there to assist with the journey. So it's a very profound experience when you see how much love and support that our dying loved ones are receiving as they cross over. So that's, so there, so there, and so if you can imagine, I'll share one brief case about this man from, this is in the, in the book, by the way, this is Larry in the, in the book. He, his daughter and granddaughter were at his bedside. As he is dying, all of a sudden, the birds just start fluttering out, gathering and fluttering in such a high pitched uh, noise that, that both Sarah and Leslie look at each other and goes, what's going on? I've never, never heard this before. And they're, and Larry opens his eyes for the last time, looks out, acknowledges the bird music, the, be- the, no- the beautiful sounds the birds are making, smiles, closes eyes, closes his eyes, and he dies. Then Leslie reports, as she's just with him, she sees a vision of her father going out, kind of as if she almost describes this going out that window, if you will, where the birds were coming through. And she sees him reunite with his beloved mother and his three siblings. And one of the siblings he was estranged from in his life, she sees his arm around this sibling and they look back together and smile as if to say, we're all good now. Everything's fine. Mm -hmm. And so this is a shared death. Both Sarah and Leslie have an experience at the same time. And it's profound because it's also very validating when you can say to somebody, Hey, I just had this. And they can say, I'm glad you 
I had, I had something too. And they can just say, okay, I'm not crazy. So that's, that's a, that's a shared, that is a multi-person shared evidence. Awesome. And we're going to talk in a little bit further into this interview about how having these shared death experiences can also really help the grieving process. But before we get to that, I'm so glad that you researched traumatic deaths and shared death experiences. That's a great question. You know, can there still be a shared death experience when there is, you know, a tragic death? You talk a lot about people who have had suicide or accidents, things of that sort. And you found that, yes, indeed, this can happen. And I'm going to, after you explain it, I think I have an experience to share with you. And I want to get your take to see if you think that this is a shared death experience related to a traumatic death. So can you talk a little bit about how it's possible or what your findings were with traumatic deaths and shared death experiences? Yeah, thank you. So traumatic deaths happen quite a bit. As we know, there are different kinds of them. One that we also highlight in the book is with Dawn. If you remember that Dawn, her son dies tragically in being run over by a car. And at the moment of his death, she feels him in her words come through her. And in that moment, she says, I know my son is dead. This is a remote shared death experience. She was probably, you know, I don't even know, in the same town. And she just knows. They get a call a second later saying, um, not a few minutes, a few moments later, saying, you should come to the hospital. Your son has been uh, injured severely. And she goes and she, and she's talking to her partner at that time, says, hey, I know he's, I know he's gone. I, I felt him. I saw, I felt him leave this plant and he's gone. So she gets there and she finds that's what happened. So this is a painful experience for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what Dawn would say as so many of our experiences around traumatic deaths would say is that it was horrible, awful. And yet he, in this case, he, her son came through me to say goodbye came to acknowledge, to let me know that he was dying mm-hmm. and, and that he was also alive. So he couldn't have done that had he not survived human death. And right. that's what our experiencers know is that this is awful, but yet I know, you know, in this case, Don can say her son is alive and well somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's profound. And so. We also have, obviously with most traumatic deaths, if you think about them, they're usually remote SDEs. And just to be clear, in our research, we found that 64% of ND, excuse me, SDEs occur remotely and about 36% occur at bedside. This is a huge finding because Raymond Moody's great book on this was only dealing with bedside shared death experiences. And there were other researchers in Europe, Europe, most notably Dr. Peter Fennick and his wife, Elizabeth, had worked mostly with remote shared death experiences. But, you know, my theory brought them together and our research validated them. So one other type of traumatic death is a drug overdose. We see this sadly a lot. Mm-hmm. And there's a type of remote SDE called a sympathetic. SDE, and that is, it's as if the experiencer suggests that they 
felt some of the dying's experience. So there's, I'll take another one just from the book. Sarah with her niece, if you remember Sarah's niece, Layla. Layla was a very close to Sarah. She had a drug overdose. Sarah wakes up uh, and unbeknownst to her that anything was going on with her niece, she wakes up at like six o'clock in the morning and she's extremely ill. She's vomiting, she's sweating. Her, her husband and kids say, we've got to take you to the hospital. This is, you know, whatever. And she goes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's getting ready. She starts feeling a little better. She goes, hold on a second, it may be passing. Anyway, she later gets a call about a half an hour later saying, I have horrible news for you. Layla died of a drug overdose last night, early this morning. And Sarah says, upon hearing that, she goes, oh my God, I felt that. I felt the trauma. I felt what she was going through. I know that was Layla. Now, what's interesting about this is sometimes the experiencer, most times the experiencer knows who it is, who the person is that's suffering. But in some cases, and in some traumatic cases in particular, they don't know. They're just sharing in the experience, but they don't know for sure who it is. Sometimes they do, as in Dawn's case, and in the, in the book, we have a couple other cases where they know, but we also have two cases where they don't know, Sarah being one of them. So this is the mystery of all this. It's fascinating. And, you know, I hope that in a few years, we'll be able to say a lot more about why some people have certain experiences with certain phenomena and why they don't. But right now, we're just at the beginning. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you, let me tell you a little bit about uh, my experience similar to Dawn. So my mom died. She was hit by a car a couple of years ago and it happened right before 1am in the morning. So I was asleep. I did not have a shared death experience, but when I had, well, let me back up a, a couple of months, I would say maybe even for the whole year, I could feel it in my bones that her time was coming. There was like an anticipation and it was interesting. In July, I recorded a podcast with um, another guest and we kind of had this whole discussion about it. And that was in July. My mom passed in October and I had this knowing. And when the state trooper came to my apartment, he was a little shocked because, you know, he said, hi, are you April Hannah? I said, yes, I am. And I said, is this about my mom? And he says, yes, I'm sorry. She's been in an accident. And I said, she's dead, isn't she? And he just kind of looked at me because, you know, it's five o'clock in the morning. There's no way I could have known. And he was just like so confused. He's like, how did you know this? You know, and I just kind of, I, I knew I wasn't particularly shocked. But the shared death experience is with my cousin and her husband at the time of my mom's death. My cousin was having a little bit of this dream and nightmare right before my mom died. And it was of a woman. She, my cousin didn't know in the dream that it was my mom, but it was this woman that was crossing the street and there was a large maroon vehicle that was bigger than a car had come and hit her. And she saw her like, you know, go over the windshield. And at the time of death, she saw the woman's spirit split into two. She split into a child. And then the adult part of her just kind of like separated. And my cousin woke up. And so she woke up and she looked and, you know, her husband wasn't in bed. So she went to go see where he was. And she's like, what are you doing up? And he's like, I don't know. I just can't sleep. There's just something wrong. I don't know what's going on. I just can't settle. And, you know, they ended up eventually going back to bed. I called them that 
that same morning, you know, to tell them what had happened. And my cousin tells me the stream that she had. Now, the interesting thing with this is that when I was able to get the police report of the investigation, sure enough, it was uh, a larger SUV and it was maroon. So she actually saw the color of the car, but witnessed some sort of impact that was happening right at I mean, it had to have been within same minutes, you know, of my mom passing. So I don't know if that would be considered either some intuition or if there is a little bit of the shared death experience where, you know, her husband just could not settle. He felt like there was something wrong. He didn't know why he couldn't go to sleep. And she's having this dream of this woman being hit by a car and, you know, seeing her separate from her body. Eventually we find out later that it was a larger vehicle and she got the color of the car right. So... With that, though, and this is going to segue into how the grieving process can be altered and changed, there was a little bit of comfort for me to hear that story of whatever this whole thing was that happened, that, you know, it felt like a communication because my cousin was sleeping very open in the dream state, you know, that there could have been this goodbye or acknowledgement that this happened, you know, almost my mom alerting somebody like, okay, this is happening and this is happening now. So I was a little disappointed. I was sleeping too and I didn't get it. But so I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, great question. So the first, my first response right off the bat is we have to really talk to your cousin a bit more because when I get cases like this, there's usually more going on that if we do a deeper interview, more pieces will come out that we can piece together a fuller presentation. Mm -hmm. That being said, it sounds like some force, whether it was your mother or some benevolent force was trying to let your cousin know this was happening mm-hmm. in that, in that way, your cousin was sharing in or bring being brought into the awareness of your mother's dying. Mm-hmm. It's right on a borderline for us, but what's really most important is not so much the categories because I created a whole spectrum of end of life experiences that have uh, pre-death premonitions, which by the way, is what you That's what I have had. Yes. And, and it's a very important, poignant experience that often doesn't get validated and come into full meaning until the premonition is harvested. Exactly. And it's painful too, when we hold these premonitions and we don't know, we don't, may not want to bring them up. We don't want to be, bring up bad news. You know, they're just, they're just loaded with a lot of, you know, conflictual ways to be with them, to interpret them, to act upon them, what have you. Uh, but this is really important. So point being is the spectrum of end of life experiences, which like I said, I created because when I was doing the research, we would get so many experiences very similar to what you did. I had this experience and my cousin had this experience. And you know, then you know, there may be some after your mother died, there might be some visitations, you know, who knows, synchronicities, all of that. So I just created this whole spectrum that really allows people a variety of handles, if you will, to, to, to hang their story on, 
to get support, to know that these are real experiences. So whether the experience that your cousin had is a shared death experience or not, it's something and it's very important. And the fact that your, her husband was so agitated also suggests something as well. In other words, there was some difference, higher energy or something that was painful, unsettling that had happened that was in their shared field, if you will, in their shared consciousness. So I would say if we, if I interviewed your cousin a bit more, it would fit somehow into a shared death experience, not so sure how, but if nothing else, the shared death experience gives a handle to her to say, well, these, this is something we've researched deeply and you had something either like that, close to that, that itself, but it would help her know, okay, these experiences happen and they're meaningful. And as you said, it, you know, it, you derived a great deal of comfort from this. And that's really important. So maybe at the end of the day, I go so far as to say, whatever experience your cousin had was given by some benevolent force, who knows, but it was in service to you and to her so that your grief would be in some way. Right. Now, in order to hold, though, the credibility of your research, you mm. are going to have to throw out some stories, right? Or like, you know, like you said, yeah. like this is one where Clearly, you know, the person having the experience isn't here for you to interview, but in order to have the credibility, yeah. you know, you have to be able to turn some of these stories away. So absolutely, I'm curious to know, is there a little bit more, can you go a little bit more into detail to say like, okay, April, this story is kind of borderline, you know, and granted, we don't have my cousin here to yep. go in depth, but what are maybe the very definitive factors that really allows your research to be credible because there is this certain patterning. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and one of the reasons I have become or became and continue to be so, I should just say strong in my views about the shared death experience and some of these other end of life experiences is because the term you used is the operative term. There is an undeniable pattern. We see this pattern over and over again. So if, if we see somebody say, I, at the time of death or near or short sometime, either it can be, actually, we actually have delayed and early and gradual SDEs as well as another subcategory. So the pattern is so strong that even if it happens a few hours, even a day before or after. We don't get a lot of these, but we do get them. We, the pattern is so compelling. So what we see is this sense that somebody feels, senses that there's been a major loss, okay? It's something that grabs their attention energetically. Now, I'm gonna do something really quickly here, maybe not so quick, but this will be really helpful and get at your question. I've identified four types of SDEs. The first is what we call sensing. And these are put into this, this typology, modes of participation. This is the type of experience that the experiencer will have. One is just sensing. They sense something. Now, none of these modes of participation are mutually exclusive. So they sense 
phenomena related to death. And I've already, you know, already shared a number of these here today. And that can be remote or bedside, doesn't make a difference. The next category is witnessing or observing phenomena. This would be really go right up into the heart and a soul of this near-death experience phenomena. So that's seeing dead ones, seeing elevated beings, seeing the light, having a life review, traveling into mystical realms, seeing the light, traveling a tunnel bridge to a portal, what have you. Something that suggests journey, movement. So if you're seeing this movement, either one is uh, pressure on the chest, ascension, uh, rising up, seeing the spirit leave the body. All of these are shared death phenomena that are witnessed, and that is the second mode of participation, witnessing phenomena. And that is, that is extremely common. The, set, the last two modes of participation are accompanying, accompanying the dying. So you actually move along with the dying in this shared death space, in this dimension. So you are with them. You're experiencing this. The last one, which only happens 6% of the time, is what we call assisting. That means somehow you've been drawn into the dying's transition to guide them, to point them. Sometimes it just is something as simple as, hey, dad, you might want to turn around and you'll see that there's a light in the distance that you need to go towards or that there's help here from other beings. And we have this in like, you know, I want to say a dozen cases where that person who's in that realm is confused, overwhelmed, doesn't know what to do. This shared death experiencer comes in to assist them and just orients them. And they go, oh, I had no idea it was that easy. So the, this, these are the patterns we see. And certainly when you get up to witnessing uh, phenomena and accompaniment and guiding, those are undeniable that when we see this pattern, it's a shared death experience. This, the sensing it remotely at a distance, that's a, that could be a little on the borderline, but we see it so much that we're able to ferret out, hey, is this a shared death experience or is it not? And, you know, we're not pushing very hard for inclusion or exclusion. We are, we are doing our diligence to identify and, and analyze these cases because they're meaningful. If you've, if you've sensed, had experience of sensing at a distance, in other words, all of a sudden you're, here's a great one. You're in the United States and you somehow wake up in the middle of the night and feel like something has happened to somebody. You don't know who, but it was in, all you know is it was, it was a, some sort of a crash of a nautical vehicle. Let's just say some sort of water vehicle. And cause I have one of these and but that's all they know. So all I know is it's like, I sent something, it had something to do with a boat. I saw a vision of it. It was a boat and, and then the, and the boat drowned, you know? And so the next day you wake up and you realize, you get news that one of your good friends was out scuba diving and had an accident and they drowned. It's like, well, you put it together and they're like, could I be making this up? Could I, could, is this just your relative? 
But as a researcher, I can say to them, probably not making it up because you had a felt sense of it. You had an image of a boat. You know, we have a few dozen of these cases. Here they are. And, you know, that one is probably further into the category than the one you shared with your cousin because there's a more validation, more corroborating details that help us. But there's the pattern that we see. And this is what I will tell, I mean, you know, I don't feel like I'm an advocate for our typologies or fitting things in in any way. What I am an advocate for is the, is the legitimacy of these experiences being something that is potentially meaningful and healing and helpful in people's relationship to the death of a loved one and their own sense of themselves as what their human capacity is in terms of like their relatability to people. I think that's one other piece that is a hallmark of the SDE is there's something about the relationship that is central to bringing these out. Now, that doesn't mean you have to have like a deep, deep relationship because a lot of hospice workers will have these with their you know, patients. And you might say, well, they're just their hospice workers, but they may be the last person mm-hmm. who really cares for them and who they've put a great deal of trust in. So there's a bond there that's qualitatively significant at a time of great need. Sure. So, yeah. so yeah, I hope I answered that in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, with your experience of, you know, doing therapy and working with people who are grieving without a shared death experience and working with people now that you've been able to interview and see their grief process with a shared death experience, what have you noticed in the difference of the grieving process? Yeah. So anytime you lose somebody, a loved one, you know, through death and certainly sudden death and certainly when it's unexpected, it's a huge loss, huge loss. So by no means with what I'm going to say would uh, be taken to be interpreted as shared death experience alleviates your pain and suffering or the loss of a loved one. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that we don't have some of those cases. We do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do. In fact, one person I'll mention is Elizabeth Boisson, who's the founder of Helping Parents Heal. She had a shared death experience with her son, Morgan, when he was, I believe, maybe 19, 20 years old. And he died at a base camp in, in Mount Everest. And before, as he was dying, he reached out to us and she said, I felt him hug me from the inside and let me know it was all going to be okay. And she has maintained that feeling ever since of him being with her supporting her, loving her. And he, she has an ongoing relationship with him. I share that one only as an outlier high bar, but it's possible. And I'm not saying I like Elizabeth very much as a person. I love the fact that she started an organization to help parents who have lost children. And she makes space for these experiences because it allows for a continuing relationship, a continuing bond that is so meaningful. So to answer your question directly about how the shared death experience and impacts grief and bereavement from my experience as a psychotherapist. First thing to say is if they have these experiences, the first thing I have to assess is what are they doing with them? Like, how are they making sense of these? And 
most people who have this experience, if they're able to receive it in any way, it automatically places the death into a larger context. Like I have a loss, but I realize my loved one goes on. There's more here. And, and that's, that's a much different grieving process. In other words, they're not asking, where are they? Are they okay? Will I ever see them again? All those questions are answered with, with good responses. Specifically, I know my loved one is alive and well. I know I see them again. I know that death is easy in a certain way, that peace and continuation comes after that. And their own fear of death and anxiety is greatly diminished, if not eliminated. So those are some of the impacts that they get to the extent that they can work with the experience ever more deeply. And I think this is where our role here, April, as, as mental health practitioners and spiritual care providers can work with these people, these experiencers to say, what do you make of this? You know, help them, you know, once we do our assessment, we see that they're healthy, we, uh, we normalize the experiences. Oh yes, these experiences happen. They're called shared death experiences. We allow them to tell the story. We help them get deeper into the story. By the way, I'm kind of walking through the clinical methods here, deepening. Have them really explore it, share it with you. And then ask them to become their own meaning-making expert on this. What does it mean to you? What are your questions? Help them explore the edges of their own interpretation of this. And not what the loss means to them and more specifically, that's one part of it. But what does it mean about who you are as a human being? Or maybe who we are all, are all as human beings? These existential perennial questions. Where do I go from here? Do I exist? What's the meaning of life? All these profound questions are the gateway to these questions are open with the SDE. And then the last thing I have these people do to really support them is talk about it with a trusted friend. Share it with a trusted friend. And then eventually, if you feel so emboldened, you know, tell more and more people. You know, you see what I've done with my own experiences. You know, now I'm, you know, share it with professional colleagues and anyone who will listen or not listen, you know, I mean, <laughs> but it's very healing to them to be able to, as it is with any experience we have, to the extent that we feel whole is the extent to which we can bring our whole self into our primary relationships and world. So this is a profound spiritual experience. For many, it is the most profound spiritual experience they've had. So for them to be able to share this is empowering to them and it makes their grief much different. They can hold the loss with a larger context because one of the things we hear over and over again is the reality that they experienced in the shared death experience is more real than this experience we're having in the, in the earth realm. Yeah. Oh, I've heard that time and time again, you know, so true. Yeah. The other thing that you had mentioned, which is going to be one of my last questions, because I had never, you know, put the words to it, but continuing bonds, you know, you kind of mentioned in the book that, you know, sometimes in maybe older traditional grief therapy, it's how do you move on? How do you get over it? Whereas continuing bonds is really working with people to help them to continue to have a relationship with their loved one in spirit, but that the relationship is still there. 
the relationship isn't gone and you can have access to somebody, you know, in that spiritual realm. And the relationship can still feel very alive, very real, very here and now. And was wondering if you can just talk a little, little more about the continuing bond concept. Thank you as well. That, that in my estimation is the healthiest, most efficacious grief and bereavement therapy that we currently have in mental health. And it, it does, it does so because as you said, it, it is different than traditional classical grief and bereavement, which encourages us, in fact, in a certain way demands us to let go of this love, lost loved one and move on to go find new relationships in a certain sense to replace that one. Right. And most of us who have these experiences that did lead us to uh, believe that our loved ones are alive and well somewhere find that to be a very inappropriate intervention. Mm -hmm. So continuing bonds allows us to both move on and live our life as we feel called to right now with new relationships, but it also invites us to continue to evolve that, those relationships that were primary in our life, even though they're no longer in human form. So, and then the key piece about continuing bonds is to allow the bereaved to reshape that relationship as they feel called to do it in a way that's natural and healthy for them. So a lot of that brings in these other experiences, post-death visions and visitations, which I know you in your programming here do a great job of bringing up and do it very well, that larger field is called after-death communication. And so for the bereaved to include those phenomena, those interactions into the shaping of this new relationship is key. So they are the maker of that relationship. And we, as the mental health professional, are there to accompany them, to, to be a, a guide, a supportive guide, not telling them, use this, use that, don't do that, you know, and also not getting into this space of when they get a visitation afterwards or the shared death experience, not for us to be the arbiter of the reality of that. I think, you know, we call this uh, ontological neutrality. We, we don't want to get into these questions of real or not real. I think what we need to do is know the research about shared death experiences, about after-death communication. Our work is also rising now as a leader in the field with our categories of direct post-death communication and uh, post-death visions and visitations and synchronicities. And to tell them, our clients, these experiences happen. There is literature out there. And if you have any doubt about it, here's the literature to read about it. But I'm telling you, if you think it's real, I support you. I can, I, I am, I, I support you because a lot of times what they're looking for, and this is in the literature as well. One of the things we find is that in grief and bereavement therapy, 80% of the clients report that their therapists, when they shared these experiences, these end of life experiences, feel that their therapist gave a less than supportive response to the sharing of these end of life phenomena. Mm -hmm. 
This is not healthy for our clients. And there's too much research out there now and more coming on that suggests that healthy, normal people are having these experiences and they're very meaningful. So it's our job to help them integrate these experiences into their life by beginning to, when they share this, not to look this way at them cross-eyed saying, really? <laughs> but to go, tell me more because I know these experiences happen. I'm familiar with them and I'd love for you to share what your experience is so I can help you make sense of it. Right. That is not ontological neutrality. That is more than that. And that's what we give our clients is we, we this is ontological affirmation, ontological affirmation. And if we can't do that as a therapist, and I tell therapists that when, you know, sometimes when I get called and I do get a lot for clinical consultation about cases, they'll say, what can I say about this? And I'll say, will you tell them it's in the literature? And I say, why? Well, I, I don't know if I feel comfortable with that. I said, then you need to tell them to find another therapist. Because mm -hmm. if you can't affirm this experience for them, then you should not be their therapist. Right. Okay, and that, and, and that, I am unequivocal about that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't, if you can't state something like, you know, somebody's having, if somebody had a traumatic experience and you can't say to them that experience is traumatic and the, the repercussions of that you're experiencing right now, if you can't say that's legitimate, rather than saying, hey, you're a victim, you need to move on from it, you're overreacting. If, if you don't know the literature and know that what trauma is for certain experiences, then you shouldn't be doing, you're out of scope of practice. Right. So, exactly. so I say, find someone in scope of practice. And uh, you know, some of your viewers are looking for that. I have you know, a number of recommendations for people around the country. So. Yeah. And for those who you know, are trained therapists, social workers, what would be great is to say to the client, oh, and guess what? I have a book right here on my bookshelf about this. I'd like to lend it to you and uh, let you read it. <laughs> it's called At Heaven's Door. So I think that this is a book that should be on every therapist's bookshelf. And also, you know, a little bit about what you're doing in the field of mental health is helping it to evolve, you know, because there are just parts of the mental health and, you know, the, the clinical realm in which, you know, we've been taught in many ways to look at things that it's time that it evolves a little bit more to be a little more inclusive of, of exactly what we're talking about today. And we couldn't agree more. Yeah. And just to, to answer that directly is that we are now bringing our programs online for 2022. So for any viewers, both public and you know, professionals who want to learn more about the shared death experience, learn more about how to use this as a practitioner. Like we have, we're going to have a shared crossing practitioner certification program so that people can demonstrate when they're, if this is relevant for end of life, hospice workers, nurses, it's also for mental health professionals or working in grief and bereavement to be able to say to a potential employer, if you're working in agency or something, hey, I'm trained in these experiences. I can help those who come in and say, I had this. And we're thinking, and I, I think those of us in the field believe that we're all, we're all, we're heading towards uh, a, a radical shift in how we view these experiences. We know they are out there. Just like interviewing you, you here today, April, you've had a couple experiences. Anytime I'm talking to people and my staff and colleagues and other people have trained, say, the first thing they say is like, 
I had no idea once I started talking about these, how many people have had these. Mm-hmm. And, and so we need to get the clinical expertise up so that we can meet the people when they are searching for help. Because having them and being validated is the first step. The next step is to harvesting the therapeutic benefits, to really work with it and ask those questions. What does it mean about, about your relationship with the loved one who's now died? What does it mean about who you are? What does it mean about your relationship to death and dying? Mm-hmm. Right. These are huge existential questions, psycho-emotional questions that if we give people the, the support to process them, to work through them, these tend to have very positive outcomes and yeah. deep transformation. Now, with the trainings and the offerings that you have, where can people sign up for those? Where can they find them? Yeah, sharedcrossing.com. Just go and you'll see that uh, we have information about those programs. We are just getting them launched. You'll start seeing them, yeah, in the, in, you know, in the beginning of 2022. But there's also something that's just a great resource for professionals and lay people. And that is we have a Shared Crossing story library where we take our video interviews of, you know, now we have 225 plus participants in our interviews, and then we edit them down to about three to five minutes so that people can see them talk about their various shared crossing experiences. Mostly what you'll see on our website now is the shared death experience, but we'll also have other experiences as pre-death dreams and visions, pre-death, a post-death visitations. So we're going to have all of it, you know, gradually laid out. But it's a really great resource because if someone says, I wonder if I had a shared death experience, you can go and listen to these people, ordinary people like you and I talk about them and they can walk away from that saying, oh my gosh, I had something similar or I had some of that or that one, you know, you know, there's, there's three or four people. I think we have five up right now, but you can get, you'll notice you might have pieces of each one of them or something. So it's a supportive platform. And there's also information on our platform definitions and our shared crossing spectrum of end of life experiences. So there's a lot of good resources for people. Awesome. Well, this was just a phenomenal conversation. I loved every single minute of it. I can't thank you enough just for your contribution and work that you're doing in the world. It is so needed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm sure all of my listeners are thanking you as well at Heaven's Door, William Peters. That's who I'm talking to today. And I hope you guys get really excited about this. The book is going to be available in January, right? January of 2022. But please, people, I mean, if, if you've ever had one, you know, or if you're curious about it. Another thing we didn't get a chance to talk about, we'll just mention it at the end, but William also talks about how people can be more prone to having them. And really it's having more of an open mind, you know, being open to the idea that this can happen. So, you know, for those of you too, who may have somebody that is actively dying or, you know, that there's an anticipated chronic illness, you know, that's happening or terminal illness, this would definitely be a book to open up your mind because maybe you too can begin to have a moment of a shared death experience. So William, thank you so, so much. This was fabulous. We will put your links in the show notes so people can click on those and get your resources, sign up for your certifications. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you, April. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. And thank you all again for listening. And I promise I will bring you another fascinating guest next week. Take care, everyone.
Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial and start streaming over 100 hours of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.